0: Hello, and welcome to something slightly different for us today, because this is a guest episode by some of our colleagues from the English department, looking at two of the poems they use for their anthology. Uh, Enjoy, and good luck with your exams. This is our second attempt to um, have a go at the poetry anthology with Mrs Norton and Mr Bannister. I'd like to call it Poetry, but I'm sure I probably will get some emails from the BBC, so I shan't. We're analysing Simon Armitage's poem, Remains. Now, unlike um, a previous poem, Tissue, um, I I really like this title. I like it because it implies that there is a a blank before and a blank after, like a blank from hell. So it's blank remains, uh, or remains blank. Human remains. Remains of the day. You get the picture, I'm sure. Um, Just be inventive with it. So, leading from the title as I always do with any poem that I'm going to encounter, um, is the the largest uh, word on the page. Um, I'm initially drawn into the casual violence and this anecdotal opening of, on another occasion, which to me reminds me of something, a conversation I may or may not have had with somebody in passing on on a bus, uh, in a pub, you know, it's one of those things that someone would say to you, on another occasion, it just seems so casual. And it goes badly wrong rather quickly um, as they're tackling raiders of a bank. We don't know where this is, and that's part of the anecdote. It just leads us into casual violence. All of the same minds, the three of us open up and let fly. To me, it reminds me of Call of Duty, any of those um, uh, games that make you want to shoot people in the head with a virtual rifle. It just seems so pointless. I see every round as it rips through his life, that so it says life, not body, because that is the first part of line nine where we see that this is going to be a personal tragedy that rips through their life and eventually the person who did the shooting. Um, this was this next observation was brought up by one of my um, current year 10s. Um, his father is has served... Um, in war zones and pointed out that it is not standard operational procedure just to shoot somebody who's probably armed, possibly not. You have to wait to see that somebody is armed before you raise your rifle to shoot back. So, they don't care and that callousness, that casual violence, which I keep quoting again, it's my view of this poem, the the, the sort of hallmark of it, They don't even know, they don't even care, it's just another occasion. And to reinforce that, line five, well somebody and somebody else and somebody else, it reminds me of the the Englishman, the Irishman, the Scotsman, those jokes that we're not probably allowed to tell anymore. But it could be a little bit more of... (sighs) There could be a degree of obfuscation there, that we're we're hiding the identity. There's no, it was my commanding officer, there was no, it was Johnny, it wasn't Barry, it was somebody and somebody else and somebody else. And we were all of the same minds, so we shot him dead. Um, I'm going to go to one other image which always strikes me in the fourth stanza, which is images of agony. One of my mates goes and tosses his guts back into his body, and then he's cast off in the back of a lorry. That casual violence again of oh, body and lorry. Always takes me back to Delke at Decorum S with uh, the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's sick of sin. If you could see the blood come, you know the poem. And I think that was deliberate. I think Armitage was referencing that poem at that moment to echo that war is eternal and just keeps going.
1: So. Remains starts using colloquial language and one of them legs it up the road, probably armed, possibly not this idea of probably and possibly um, develops this concept of doubt and as uh, Mr. Banas has already said you know, you don't just go around shooting people um, unless they are armed and actually they are pointing guns at you So. This idea of doubt is really important. It's also really important that, well, myself and somebody else and somebody else, there are no names given, there's no specifics, um, but they're all of the same mind. And so all three of us open fire, three of a kind, all letting fly, and I swear, enjambant, I see every round as it rips through his life. Well, the idea of life as opposed to body, it's already being discussed, but I want to have a look at the word rips it's violent, it's a violent verb, and it suggests that it leaves behind tatters rather than anything nice and neat that could have been cut through by scissors or a knife um, I see broad daylight on the other side, in fact the whole body is in such disarray that you can see the daylight through the body, it's ripped apart um, and we've hit him a dozen times, and there, and he's there on the ground, sort of inside out, sort of inside out. Meaning, I think, that your mind is able to play on the image of his guts all over the road, which is something that uh, Armitage keeps on referring back to later on in the poem, uh, and. Mr. Bannister has already said this, uh, intertextuality with the poem written by uh, Owen, Dulce Decorum Est. He's um, carted off in the back of the lorry. And from here, uh, the poem, I think, can be divided into two parts, because I think we've finished there with this awful lack of dignity. Um, next line, 17, end of story, except not really, is a vaulter of the poem. So, he's told the story of what has happened, the indignity of this death that he has actually perpetrated, um, and uh, we've got this extra bit to the sentence, except not really, which leaves me to consider whatever does he mean by not really because, well, what does he mean? And let's have a look at that now.
0: As Mrs. Norton pointed out, the, the vault and also have been abbreviated since your end of story, except not really. We have this circularity of events which is followed on the line directly underneath it, but one, line 19, week after week, which implies week after week after week after week after week. Uh, the blood shadow. Is a horrific image. It reminds me of the blood eagle. I think was that was that Viking, or was that pushed onto um, the one of the uh, First Nation tribes? The idea that you would snap someone apart and then leave their ribs showing through. It's that horrible image, that icon of suffering and violence, which Mrs. Norton has just spoken eloquently about. About the idea about something being inside out, you can see through, which goes back to my first moment. Um, when I thought about violent computer games, and I've mentioned this to students, so how do you dispatch someone quite quickly? And they always say, oh, just shoot them in the head. And and there's that awful preparation that is now suggested that in some ways teenagers are trained to kill by playing violent games. That's something else. As is the idea of killing somebody uh, so casually, and then they keep coming back week after week, but I blinked, line 20, and then he burst to the doors of the bank, and then we have these commandments, sleep, dream, At the beginnings of the two lines that follow. No, nothing, nothing, there's no way that the drugs won't flush him out, flush him out like a, is that like the hair, the yellow hair that we get, which we'll come back to in Bayonet Charge? to flush somebody out is to flush them down the drain to flush them away but it's drink and drugs won't flush them out now I've spoken with um, a close friend of mine who served in the army um, and he's told me it's always the quiet moments it's when you think everything's okay just when you're about to look at yourself in the mirror and go out and then it all comes back there's no way to get it out and that permanent reminder that moment that sharp reminder, comes at the end of that stanza. We have this hyphen, this dash, just one flush him out. And then the next line, 25, begins in lowercase, as does the final stanza. So it's this constant present tense. And the the structure of the quatrain starts to break down. We have that enormously long line, um, line 27. And we have this repetition, dead, distant, and even in the ending, stunned, sand smothered land it's very final, it's leaden it feels like a repetitious banging against the head and my knuckles and my bloody hands it's very physical, it gets right deep down behind enemy lines when I close my eyes it's very confused and it ends abruptly and I'll leave Mrs. Norton to, to speak about the last stanza
1: the first part of the poem, there are obviously three people who um, take part in the murder of uh, this looter. The second part of the poem is about one person's guilt and shame and what he's done and how his thoughts and feelings uh, drive him um, to this, I think you could call it a certain type of madness. Um, he sees the blood shadow on the street, whether it's really there or not, I'm not sure, but he sees it, which is the most important thing. And every time he walks over it, week after week, he still sees it, so it doesn't go away in his mind, suggesting guilt. Then I'm home on leave. He's in a completely different situation. He's back home with his family. And uh, probably doing very ordinary, everyday things, like cleaning the leaves out of the gutter. Um, but I blink. I have something to do with the eyes and what he sees, and he bursts again through the doors of the bank. Uh, idea of bursting, it's violent. And again, he's and he's probably armed, possibly not. So he'd have to look back at line four, probably armed, possibly not. And he's using the same words, but has a very different meaning. Dream and he's torn apart by a dozen rounds, and the drink and the drugs won't flush him out. I think the drink and the drugs suggest that he's hiding uh, his emotions behind um, a cocktail of uh, alcohol and um, prescription drugs. He's here in my head when I close my eyes. It cannot get rid of this image dug in behind enemy lines. Uh, it's a metaphor uh, suggesting that he is in that no man's land, that area between uh, friend and foe. Um, and we've got this line, some distant, sun-stunned, sand-smothered land, or six feet under in desert sand. So you've got a rhyme. Um, And we've also got this idea of uh, a foreign setting, a different setting, sand-smothered land, and I think it ties in very, very neatly uh, with Ozymandias, um, the poem that we looked at in the last podcast. Um, But near to the knuckle, here and now, we go back to very colloquial language here, his bloody life in my bloody hands. His life, my hand, the pronoun there is really important because it is, there's no collective responsibility. He's on his own. He is taking full responsibility for the death of this looter. And we have also intertextuality here with bloody hands. And I think you can refer to Macbeth. Um, and uh, Lady Macbeth sleeps, walks, and tries to wash the imaginary blood from her hand. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand, she says, and she's constantly washing blood from her hands, blood that only she sees, of course, nobody else, because that suggests the madness, which is what I said uh, at the beginning uh, of this second part of the um, poem, that I think it is a sign of madness. He is also trying to um, calm his madness through the alcohol and the drugs, but they are not working
0: moving from the, the desert sand of remains and Ozymandias we leave those behind for the, uh, the frigid death that we get in Wilfred Owen's exposure. Um, I think it's worth pointing out, I always point this out whenever I read any of Owen's poetry that the end the, the war never ended they make a point of giving you his death date which is uh, 1918 just days before the armistice so Owen died in the war um, Simon Armitage didn't He was picking up these stories from from soldiers who'd served in foreign conflicts abroad, um, which filled the 90s. I remember them very well. Um, So, the the terrifying reality that Owen was an intelligent man, possibly one of the most intelligent people in the world, in terms of being a poet very affected by the world around him. Um, And that secondary voice, the voice of the poet echoes through at the end of every single one of the stanzas we get a a brief glimpse on the second line which is just us and then an ellipsis There's that moment of pause but nothing happens and I'm just going to read those lines as they stand out to me, they are horizontal they are in line, they are a secondary voice, like a like an absurd prayer Us, but nothing happens. What are we doing here? But nothing happens. Nonchalance, but nothing happens. Snow days. Is it that we are dying? We turn back to our dying. For the love of God seems dying, but nothing happens. That's horrific when you consider that church numbers diminished greatly after the First World War, and not only due to the Spanish flu and death, but because people's love of God was made afraid, that's quoting from line 36, that you may be persuaded to think you might be going to hell by a priest in a pulpit, but nothing sends you directly to hell quicker than a German machine gun. One of the most perfect examples of civil alliteration comes from this poem in the fourth stanza. I'm going straight into a sort of language um, analysis with sudden successive flights of bullet streak, the silence less deadly than the air that shudders black with snow, with sidelong flowing flakes that flock, pause, and renew. But that awful shot, smattering of bullets that pass over your head that we know, that I know, from innumerable films uh, is perfectly echoed in very few, very simply and carefully chosen words but the fact that they streak the silence and these men are just waiting to die and they would prefer, I guess, to be shot in the head than to freeze to death and that's why they fear the snow more than they feared the bullets. What a horrific way to lead people to their deaths. Which is how we begin line one. Our brains ache in the merciless iced east winds that knife us. There are so many sharp sounding words other than knife, we've got iced east wind. You can feel it digging into your bones. And your brains ache. I I can only remember a couple of occasions in my life when I've been so cold that my brain aches. But I had the luxury of being able to go home. These men cannot go home. And there's that leaden sense of them trying to pray their way out of it, but nothing happens. What are we doing here, the pointlessness of war? Um, And it's that moment where you doze off to sleep, where you have just become so tired and broken by misery around it, suddenly doze off, and doze off but when you doze off and you wake up, you're back in it again, you're still freezing to death and there's that terrifying uh, back section of the poem, when we move from the misery of the trenches um, back to forgotten dreams back on forgotten dreams, sorry Mickey make it 24 and stare snow dazed, back into their hometowns, where Littered with blossoms and blackbirds, this is the bucolic beauty of Britain. We're taken back, but as they step back in time, sixth stanza, um, line twenty-nine. The ghosts themselves drag home, and that says you're the, the the colon there, glimps glimpsing the sunk fires, glows. Glows I like because it reminds me of clothes, but it also implies a, a diminution, a, a gradual dying, that the brightness, the flames that would normally fire the home fires of Britain have died along with God's love. And the crusted dark jewels, I find that really terrifying. And I think that you're looking at frozen blood around a corpse's eye socket. I don't know why, that's just something that I always see frozen blood on the snow, and dying fires. These are dreams that only soldiers who died in that terrible war have, and they are perpetually frozen in this moment of perfect poetry.
1: So, to reiterate this concept that um, Owen actually took part in this war, he knew what it was like to live in the trenches, Uh, and fight the Germans in the terrible conditions of um, a freezing European winter. Um, So look at the first line, uh, Our brains ache in the merciless ice, east winds that knife us ellipsis. So here we have a wind personified, and it's an east wind, and the east wind is always a very cold wind, especially in the winter time. It's iced, and it knives us. It knives us. So that whole idea of violence, that the actual wind is an enemy apart from anything else, so the weather is an enemy. And this use of the pathetic fallacy um, is really interesting because it's not just the Germans who are the enemy here it is the weather, as well, because they're living outside. They're not living in sheltered accommodation anywhere, they are living outside in these terrible icy cold uh, conditions. So the personification of the weather uh, enhances this idea of the weather being part of the enemy. The ellipsis serves to give us some time between each line, And this is something that I think the soldiers in this poem um, have too much of time. Uh, Nothing happens, dot, 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 nothing happens. And the time to question, what are we doing here? Well, this whole idea of being in a confused state and not knowing what is going to happen next, that they are fighting a battle, and yet, they don't seem to be given any orders to do the next thing. If you look at line six, watching, we hear the mad gusts tugging on the wire like twitching agonies. As Mr. Bannister has already said, the words in this poem have been chosen very, very carefully, a twitching agony of men among its brambles. I think the brambles is a a metaphor for barbed wire. And of course there are men hanging on barbed wire unable to get off the barbed wire not quite dead but nearly dead twitching in agony uh, in, in their position now that is bad enough for the person who is actually watching this but for the person who is actually trapped on the barbed wire exposed as the um, title rightly says exposed on the barbed wire uh, that the, the mental agony of that must have been horrific, and I think that Owen captures this whole idea of the futility of war and the horrible deaths um, that, have, uh, that, that happened during that time. Um, even the dawn, which is usually personified as a time of great hope and light, uh, it is not is not a happy time. Um, misery of dawn, a poignant misery of dawn begins to grow and we know, and we only know war lasts, rain soaps, and clouds sag stormy that word sag hangs down, it's, got, it's formless uh, and you can uh, refer that back to line 3 with the word drooping that sort of lack of energy in uh, the flares, in the clouds um, and in fact, there is a lack of energy in some way throughout this poem, because the, the participants are so tired and so cold that they can't, cannot have any energy at all. Um, so again, with reference to the dawn, as I've said, the dawn brings light, and usually that is associated with hope. There's an irony here because um, in this case the dawn does bring light, but with that light brings the reality of the horror surrounding these men. So in the light they are able to see men hanging off barbed wire and um, you know, being um, killed and dying horrible long Painful, unnecessary deaths. On line um, 19, we talk, uh, or Owen talks about the wind's nonchalance. Now, I want you to think about remains here, because I think that in remains there is a certain nonchalant tone um, across the whole poem, a sort of almost a lack of caring. And here the wind is described as nonchalant, nothing, it's, it doesn't care, it's not helpful. In line 21, pale flakes with fingering stealth come feeling for our faces. To me, that is horror—absolute horror. Fingering stealth come feeling for our faces. Our faces are bit, uh, really the most important part of us, as a bodily. And this idea of pale flakes with fingering stealth—they're very quick, and they're very—you uh, know—they can feel their way through the dark and that the men cringe, they're so frightened that they cringe. Um, and they are snow-dazed, so that is a sort of like a half-rhyme, um, and that also sort of feeds into the idea of the next two lines, which is the dreams that they have, they're dazed, it's not true, and sun dozed, which is the opposite to snow-dazed, I suppose. Um, and where we were littered with blossoms trickling, where the blackbird fusses. That wonderful sound of spring, so we've got diametric opposition here about the horror of the foreign land and the battlefield, and the beauty of an English spring, which will always have been remembered by these soldiers as a time of great beauty. Line 26, Our Ghosts Drag Home, suggesting, I think, that these men are hardly alive at all, and in fact they are probably uh, half dead. Um, The crusted, dark red jewels have already been discussed by Mr. Bannister, um, but we've also got, again, a caesura here, and Cricket's Jingle there, and I think that that is um, this idea of the the dream about home, the crickets that sound in the grass, the idea of a jingle being a particularly happy musical sort of sound, uh, as opposed to the crested dark red jewels. Um, And in line 29, shutters and doors, says Jura, all closed, on us the doors are closed. So the repetition of the idea of closed shutters and doors, windows and doors are locked against them, they are outside, they cannot get inside. The caesura uh, reinforces that whole idea together with the uh, repetition of the word close. In line 9, it says, like a dull rumour of some other war. This is a a biblical reference um, to the actual uh, prediction of the end of the world and um, hence is intertextuality. So whilst Owen is talking about God and um, questioning God about the war, he's also referring uh, in some way uh, to the um, teachings of the Bible.
0: I'm going to try and tie this poem up because I, I do believe that myself, Mr. Nolan, could keep going for another half an hour, quite easily. It's, it's a very dense poem. Um, it is a masterclass. So, I'm returning to the beginning. The the yeah, the notion of the, the the waiting, the ellipsis, which repeats on line two, on line three, on line four. Um, silence and salience are linked, obviously. Um, but I think salient has two meanings. Uh, the, the idea about being aware of yourself, um, making sense of the world around you, but also in terms of uh, trench design, the salient was the trench that was closest to the enemy lines. So if you were a sentry and you were in the salient, you kept your mouth shut. You talked in whispers. That's why they're curious and nervous waiting for the morning hate, which was usually um, the way that the opposite sides reminded each other they were still there and still having a war. But on this occasion, nothing happens. It's quiet, as it is. And they just freeze to death instead, which I suppose is moderately worse. Um, the last stanza, it, it, it sickens me. Um, the idea of shriveling, hands and puckering foreheads. It's the cold that's fastened on a corpse. A corpse that is semi rotten. Its skin has become slack and has been frozen slack by the frost. And the burying parties would obviously go out at night. They're not they're not going out to, to look for men who are alive, they are burying parties. To try and prize men out of frozen mud. And um, the deliberation of uh, burying parties picks and shovels. The, the uh, punctuation works also, do, as do the plosives, the idea that they're picking their way carefully amongst no man's land, looking and they pause over half known faces. All their eyes are ice, frozen eyes. Uh, it's that dark red jaws again that I've already mentioned. Uh, but the, the soldiers who were taking part of the uh, burying parties realised quite early that you made sure that when you were digging around men, you went for the ones that were died face forwards because you could walk on their spines then the physicality of a human form as it begins to rot if you put your foot in a man's stomach you're going to put your foot into what remains of his last meal and his intestines that awful reality that I can only pick up, thankfully because people recorded it in poetry and first-hand accounts the true horror of war is that distancing that you have to go through to survive, to stand above it, to walk through it, and to live through it, which is unfortunately something that Owen didn't. Uh, Moving on to bayonet charge, um, the the line that strikes me straight away on slide 10, echoing my previous statement about this distancing that you have to you have to have enabled within you in your um, basic training or as if you're an experienced soldier like I was you refer into this training that the cold clockwork um, line 10 it's this mechanised methodology that's been pushed into you so that you can cope um, I don't mean to just jump straight into the second stanza but it, it seemed pertinent for that moment to do so a bayonet charge is a uh, a much simpler poem. Um, I think that you can see quite clearly that it is made of three roughly even stanzas. So I'm thinking initially, and this is before I ever read the poem, I thought, am I going to have a, a beginning, a middle, and end here? And although uh, Ted Hughes plays around with the, uh, the idea of chronological time, we do have a, a, a constant present tense, which reminds me of a uh, post-traumatic stress Um, and this repetition of events. Um, We're dropped straight into the thick of the action. It's like um, Saving Private Ryan, Omaha Beach, bang, you there. Suddenly, he awoke, he was running raw, and then we have raw repeated, hot, sweaty. We're seeing a a very active battle scene, we've been dropped straight in at the thick end of the action. So we have this present tense stumbling across fields and clods towards the green hedge. The green hedge is repeated in the third stanza, playing around with chronology, line 19, he plunged past with well, his bayonet towards the green hedge. Towards the green hedge remains static, uh, but we have clods in stanza 1 and we have bayonets, which is now drawn in stanza 3, as if the soldier has already had to strike somebody. A bayonet is not a toy. A bayonet is one of the few ways in which you can make a, a rifle more frightening. And what's more terrifying is that a bayonet is for ripping men. It's not for cutting chicken, it's for killing men. You strike with a bayonet, you do a quarter turn, you pull out, so your blade doesn't get stuck in an enemy body. It's terrifying. And the fact that he has plunged past tents line 19 pass with the bayonet and the green hedge has he already killed? I don't know, but that's what a bayonet is for, and a bayonet charge is a desperate attempt to scare the enemy, to strike the enemy through the heart with fear.
1: I believe that in this poem Ted Hughes challenges patriotism, and I think this can be seen in a number of ways, looking at line 20 King, honor, human dignity, etc. Drop like luxuries in a yelling alarm. King, honor, human dignity. We fight for those um, ideals, but followed with the word etc. We could go on and on and on of these ideas. Drop to like luxuries. They are discarded because in that Barnett charge, as Mr. Bannister has just said. Uh, There is nothing more frightening or more debilitating than uh, being charged at by a bayonet so everything is dropped. And even the person wielding the bayonet drops all his human dignity in thrusting that uh, bayonet into the enemy quarter turn and pulling it back out again. I also believe that um, Ted Hughes is discussing the universal soldier here and some of you might be interested in uh, looking up the song universal soldier, it's a 1960s um, uh, song of protest, It's quite interesting Uh, this idea of uh, the universal soldier, the soldier from every country in the world has the same sort of experiences in a sense. Uh, looking at line two, uh, we have this uh, alliteration of H, hot, his, heavy, which I think can um, be really interestingly interpreted as a, <sighs> which is uh, obviously you know being out of breath. So I think that it's uh, reflecting uh, the soldier's breathlessness as it was. Uh, the idea of stumbling across a field, if you stumble you're clumsy, soldiers necessarily are clumsy, they're carrying so much kit, they're using vast amounts of calories in actually running with all of this kit attached to them, and this uh, line five, bullets smacking the belly out of the air, the violence of that line is I think um, exceptional. and at the end of the lines, we have line six and seven and eight. We have um, smashed arm, brimmed in his eyes, centre of his chest, all um, physical areas of the body. And we have also this idea of the patriotic t- tear, tear, sorry, that had brimmed in his eye, because when that moment, you know, when you're called to battle and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up that it changes from that to sweating like molten iron from the centre of his chest, the explosion inside of of him, of this sort of dreadful um, situation that he finds himself in, sweating like molten iron, it's heavy and it's something that it's very very difficult to bear. Um, And also it could possibly refer to the fact that at that moment he realizes, as a universal soldier, that the people in charge of the war and of commanding troops have very little interest in the individual universal soldier. So I think that that's a possibility um, that you can think about there. Um, Again, Last week we discussed statues slightly. In line 15 we've got the soldier running. He's running and his foot hung like statuary in mid-stride. Caesura. Then the hot slashed furrows. It's as if the man, the soldier, has been made into a statue with his leg in in stride, running across the field. and. Uh, this could be that, that at that particular moment in time the soldier is bewildered, so bewildered that he's become stoned, if you like, or frozen in stone and terrified in the situation that he finds himself. Um, and then we have um, something that uh, Hughes is renowned for because he uses um, bucolic images of the countryside in in his work. So we have a green hedge in line 3, we have a green hedge in line 19, we have a yellow hare in line 16, and I think these are really important to understand. that Ted Hughes found the natural world very interesting, and um, he was a very well aware that it wasn't always a place of calm, and that it was quite an aggressive place. But here the green hedge is highly symbolic of um, the natural life, and it does here, I think, contrast with the violence and the terror of war. The hare, well, the hare, threw up a yellow hair that rolled like flame. and crawled in a threshing circle, its mouth wide open, silent, its eyes standing out. Well, you could say that this was a metaphor for the absolute terror that the soldier feels. Um, It could in actual fact be a hare that has been shot out of a hedge and been um, thrust up into the air, Um, its mouth wide open, silent, its eye standing out, it could be terrified by the situation that it finds itself in but the question to ask yourself is why is um, Hughes using this idea and this imagery in this particular poem?
0: I see the uh, the transition moment at the end of line 15 similarly but differently. The, to me it reminds me of uh, a sort of matrix moment when we had this almost slow down when you get that, that soundtrack, slowing down to an absolute pause statuary midstride. Yes, I, I agree with Mr. Norton, the idea of a statue, we see so many statues particularly in um, Russian statues, they would have these um, larger than life, at least 50 percent taller to, to imply the strength of soldiers, and they're always running always running towards whoever it is that they're trying to kill or away from where they're supposed to. I, I, what I'm getting at is I see a transpositional moment here at the point where the wall seems to run to a full stop mid-stride perfect césura, And then the shot slashed furrows through up a yellow hair. It's almost like the image of the, the, the hair is being overlaid over the top of the wall but something natural seems to come out. And we, we drift out of the war zone into this more figurative world of hares and wars. The threshing circle was always a way that crops were brought in, but the threshing circle is a metaphor for war. Threshing, blades, knives, bayonets, chasing the hare. hares run. I think the yellow could be a sense of cowardice. It also could be the flashing image of rifle fire. Flash, flash, the flame that shot out the open mouth of the of the hare in absolute horror as it knows its moment of life is to be extinguished. As the soldier fears for his life, we have this transit away from mechanical machines of war, to a a moment of beauty, but also in the the mouth and the eye of a hare, there's that wet terror. The the innermost part is shown just before it is ripped apart. Um, That leads to this troublesome, for me, final line. Um, The terror's touchy dynamite. It's all about to explode. We don't see it. No one actually dies in this. We don't see somebody like in Owen's poem, who's being killed or is twitching like an agony among the brambles. We have that uh, transpositional moment between nature and war there too. But the terror's touchy dynamite is just about to go off, but it doesn't. But when you light dynamite, you can't put it out. You can't snuff it out. And to be near it is to die because there's no escape from it, like the hair cannot escape from the threshing cycle. It cannot go back
1: to the ground again because the ground has been blown apart.